so I heard that you could get a pretty decent computer, personal computer, an IBM PC clone from a company that was called PCs Limited. And uh, PCs Limited was uh, actually a DBA for a company called Dell Computers. So I bought one of the first Dell computers, which was through PCs Limited, and carted it home. And I had this computer and this amber monitor, uh, no color, just amber, that was it. And a stack of manuals, you know, like this, huge stack of manuals, uh, one for each computer program and one for the computer itself and one for the monitor and all this stuff that I had to read through and learn. And I started kind of banging away on the computer. And then it's like, okay, Marcia, now what I want to do next is I want to, I want to log in via long distance to this system that's out in California. And it's going to be about 10 bucks an hour. And this led to a, a rather tense discussion. And uh, of course, acknowledging who wears the pants in the family, uh, that we squashed that idea. Plutopia's John Lubkowski was an early adopter of digital technology and the internet. On this episode of the Plutopia podcast, John presents a history of digital tech, life online in the 1990s, the internet, and much more. Many years ago, we were having a crazy time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, today want to talk a little bit <coughs> about, I don't know, I guess some of the history that I lived through, and I, I think you were both living through it too. Um, and it started back in... Uh, you know, right around 1990 or the early 90s is when the internet started to catch on, when the potential for mainstreaming to happen um, started to feel real. So the internet was created by ARPANET. Uh, it was, uh, or as ARPANET, it was created by the government and it was created. Um, to be a, actually to be a, 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 a network that was resistant to disruption. Say if there was a nuclear attack or something like that. Oops. The network running, <laughs> you know? So it, it would be like hard to damage. And, but as it rolled out and as more people started using it, uh, people were using it to send messages to each other. And um, that was really kind of the big deal. Almost everywhere you put the internet was that people started sharing information with each other or sending messages or, you know, sending whatever they could. Early on, it was mostly just text-based stuff, right? So at the same time that you had the internet, um starting to roll out more i mean it had been it it was mostly research and development for a while more and more corporations started coming on and connecting to it and then other ways of access came around for instance bulletin board systems which were not really connected directly to the internet did have a way to share email over the internet. So you could send email from one bulletin board system to another. Uh, And this whole BBS thing started to kind of grow and evolve. And there were more and more of these bulletin board systems where people could log into them and post messages at each other, like post back and forth to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can thank our friend Tom Jennings for that one. Right on. Tom Jennings uh, with FidoNet, uh, built a, a huge and very popular network uh, that was active in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, and Tom did a lot of other things. There's a lot that we could talk about that Tom was involved with. But um, um, 
the main point of this is that the network was starting to connections were starting to form more and more connections and uh the way i came to this was that in in the mid 1980s so i was an avid devotee of the whole earth catalog and related publications whole earth published several different versions one of which actually i have it here i was going to hold it up um called signal and this signal thing talks a lot about community well, it's communication tools for the information age so i was not a computer guy at the time signal came out uh except through maybe some stuff i was doing at work and i would I was learning that I had an affinity for computers mm -hmm. and this thing called signal appeared and it was all chock full of stuff about, you know, the potential power of, of computers and, and what they could do. And, and coevolution quarterly, which was published by whole earth and the whole earth software review and signal and all these publications that they were, uh, um, that they were publishing at the time were all mentioning that they had a bulletin board system of their own that whole earth had started a bbs as an experiment and they called it the whole earth electronic without an e just electronic link and the abbreviation for that was the well so you had this thing called the well where people were hanging out together and and basically messaging each other that it was what they actually call a conferencing system and the way it was organized was that you had conferences which were just kind of like big main forum areas right and within those conferences you had topics and you know topics could be about any subject that was related to the main subject which was the forum so if you have like a, a movies conference then you may have topics for specific movies or specific kinds of movies specific film styles that sort of thing so you have all these conversations kind of appearing on this bulletin board system and the whole earth people had their own conference on the well and they developed it by inviting for instance deadheads because they knew the grateful dead followers in the bay area were a huge community this was all happening in the bay area scoop mm -hmm. you were there oh yeah um, and you were kind of in the middle of all this stuff so in the bay area you had uh deadheads who were joining the well and the well became a way for them to connect with each other and that was one of the first really powerful community uh online community bits that uh leave it to the deadheads yeah went to the deadheads. <laughs> and then they started in they they were smart in that they said well what we really need to do is invite people who are great communicators so they would give free accounts to journalists and writers and people like that Excellent. that's a great idea so a ton of people started showing up and i was reading this stuff and i was like this whole earth fanboy <laughs> who was dying to figure out a way to meet all of these people and hang out with them and suddenly i find out that all i really have to do is figure out a way to log into this bulletin board system that's hmm. uh in sausalito california so some complications there one thing is that in order to do that i needed to have my own personal computer which and i did not I have pay for those calls that was a big deal back then yeah and those uh, yeah calls another were thing was that long distance so the well charged i think it was two dollars an hour for connection but then you had to dial in and and my recollection is that long distance was something like eight dollars an hour so it was like ten dollars an hour for me to log into the well yeah pretty much <laughs> so i i talked marcia my wife into this idea that we would get a computer um 
she wasn't sure that she that we should go the expense because we have to go to the bank and get a bank loan to buy the computer. Yes. They were not was, back then. No. I think, I think it was like thirty five hundred bucks or something, four thousand. Oh. And that was that was a lot, you know. Yeah. And uh, she was reluctant, but she was also a realtor. And I pointed out to her that there, she could also log into her uh, multiple listing service and that she could do her MLS stuff from home. You know, she had to go to the office to do that all the time. That's and she great. liked that idea. Yeah. And it gave us a business reason to have the computer, which made it a write-off, of course. That's very smart. I did the same thing uh, to get my first expensive computer because my wife was an accountant. And so she, I showed her calc and various other things like Lotus one, two, three, eventually it's like, well, buy that thing, boy. So it's like, wow. I'm free on that one. Yeah. So, and Lotus one, two, three comes into this at some point too, but uh, because I ended up through all of the stuff that happened after that, I ended up meeting Mitch Kapoor, who was the guy who, uh, I mean, Lotus one, two, three was his company, but that's, farther down the road I had and I had just a 300 baud modem which is what most people had then because that was kind of it at the time that was about as fast as you could get and I went out so I heard that you could get a pretty decent computer personal computer an IBM PC clone from a company that was called PCs limited and uh, PCs Limited was uh, actually a DBA for a company called Dell Computers. <laughs> so I bought one of the first Dell computers, which nice. was through PCs Limited, and carted it home. And I had this computer and this amber monitor, uh, no color, just amber. That was it. And a stack of manuals, you know, like this huge stack of manuals uh one for each computer program and one for the computer itself and one for the monitor and all this yeah. stuff that i had to read through and learn and i started kind of banging away on the computer and then it's like okay marcia now what i want to do next is i want to i want to log in via long distance to the system that's out in california and it's going to be about 10 bucks an hour and this led to a, a rather tense discussion. I can imagine. And, uh, of course, acknowledging who wears the pants in the family, uh, that we squashed that idea. She yeah. wasn't up for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I wasn't going to do that. So what was I going to do? The first, next thing I could do is look for local bulletin board systems so I could figure out how that whole thing works. Oh, yeah. And the first one I discovered was called Secret Masters of Fandom. Oh. Abbreviated as SMOF, S-M-O-F, B-B-S. <laughs> I was to know what the hell that was when you, when you sent it over. I was like, what is a SMOF? SMOF, B-B-S. It was, it, and that was, it was operated by a guy named Earl Cooley, whose handle was Shiva. And it was for science fiction fans specifically wow. and science fiction writers. Oh, wow. And a couple of the, one of the first people I met on that BBS uh, used the handle Jules Verne. Oh. And, and I later discovered that Jules Verne was Bruce Sterling. Oh, no um, kidding. So that was the start of my long, you know, friendship yeah. with Bruce. And uh, another guy on there went by the handle Johnny Mnemonic, which was from a short story by a guy named William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer, which is figures in a big way into all this. Uh, uh, Johnny Mnemonic was Mike Godwin, who became the first counsel, the first attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So, you know, I was kind of meeting these guys and I, I, I'm not really a, a, much of a gamer. But I got, I learned that there was uh, something called Steve Jackson Games, and this guy Steve Jackson created what they called generic universal role playing systems, or GURPS, they called it. <laughs> what that really was was like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, 
is a role playing game. Mm-hmm. You get a you you just get a book of rules basically, and yep. and character descriptions and stuff like that, and you just kind of figure it out from there, and you start playing the game, and it's sort of like being in a world, you right. know. Well, the GURPS was like that too. It was like they were role playing games. Okay. And Steve did other kinds of games too, but for these role playing games, he used his bulletin board system as uh, a playtest site. People would log in there and get some of the game stuff, and they would actually kind of play the games online and offline. But but basically, they were testing games for him. That was part of what was happening there. The name of his bulletin board system was Illuminati. Oh. <laughs> Fairly nice. obvious, right? Nice. Uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson riff, really. And um, um, and he had a game called Illuminati too. But um, the, are you talking about the books? Yeah. The yeah. well, yeah. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson yes. had written this Illuminati trilogy. So and, it's so uh, good. It's so good. Yeah, exactly, and 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 it was uh, it was like a religious influence on a lot of people at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, people were really sort of they were getting it was all kind of ironic, funny, crazy stuff. Yeah, that kind of made fun of of the cult behavior of human beings and the power exchanges of human beings. Mm-hmm. So Steve had this BBS, and he had people on every BBS had email. Some of it was local, but more and more, I mentioned before that you could swap email using something called UUCP. Uh, You could send email over the internet so that it would go to other bulletin board systems. Right. So um, email was starting to evolve as something people definitely used and, and used very effectively. So, um, am I getting ahead of myself? So I have joined the well, and uh, one of the things that happened when I joined the well, well, I should say that before, just before I joined the well, I actually met Bruce Sterling at a Writers League meeting where he was giving a talk, and uh, that's when I found out that he was Jules Verne on the BBS. <laughs> and in that talk, he talked about this publication called Fact Sheet 5. Fact Sheet 5 was uh, a a zine about zines. It was a zine that was published by a guy named Mike Gunderloy. And uh, Mike basically reviewed every zine he could get his hands on. Like he read tons of zines and wrote reviews of them. I don't know how he found time to do it all, really. And Fact Sheet 5 started as kind of like this mimeograph thing, and then it turned into an actual zine, an actual magazine, more of a magazine format. But I learned about that from Bruce, and then when I joined The Well, I discovered that Mike Gunderloy had an account on The Well, and he had a conference of his own there, a Fact Sheet 5 conference, where people talked about zines. And I became active in that conference and met a guy named Mark Frauenfelder. Mark was publishing a zine at the time with his wife, Carla Sinclair, and it was called Boing Boing. So this zine Boing Boing was, uh, to the extent it had circulation, it it was pretty popular. And and everybody thought it was like this super cool zine. And I, I got excited about it. I had not actually seen a physical copy of it when I met Mark, but Mark invited me to become an editor on Boing Boing. Cool. And, and what he wanted me to do was be the fiction editor because I had a background in, you know, I'd like English major and that sort of thing. And, um, and I did that. I agreed that he sent me these tons of submissions that he had of fiction. Uh, in hard copy, by the way, and I, it was like a slush pile, and I got this slush pile, and the stuff was so bad that I told Mark that he should quit soliciting fiction and, and you know, run fiction only occasionally and, and accept fiction only 
from known sources right uh, because it was just uh, well for one thing boing boing was really not known for its fiction anyway <laughs> so so i i i had to take on another role at boing boing and the the role that i got what we settled on calling me was cyborganic jive meister because i kind of like had had a habit of putting things together and introducing people to each other and so mm -hmm. forth. So I became the jive meister. Jive meister. I like it. And one of the people that I met who was another associate editor at, at Boing Boing, a guy named Paco Xander Nathan. Paco lived in Austin and I lived in Austin and Paco was also on the well. So we started communicating with each other and then we met and we started hanging out. And uh, Paco and I were both, we both read Mondo 2000 and we were, we were uh, both focused on the zine world. So just to say a little bit about the zine world too, what had happened there, this was sort of like a transition from the mass media, mass magazine world to uh, internet culture. Uh, a step along the way was the creation of desktop publishing capabilities so that people without a whole lot of money could still get the means to produce a magazine or a zine. So, so all kinds of people were suddenly starting to create and publish and get printed and get circulated small scale publications, zines. And there were some places like Tower Records, for instance, was known for having a huge number of, of the zines that were available in all of its stores. So they were starting to circulate more and better. And um, when I met Paco, we started talking about the idea of, so he knew people and I had known people who had things that they would like to be able to bring to market but they couldn't afford the cost of bringing it to market. For instance, if you developed a software package in order to actually get it into the stores, because software was sold on disks in stores, you know, you'd go to Egghead Software or whatever and, and buy a box that had the software and the manual in it, uh, which nobody does anymore. But back then that was how you had to do it because the internet was not fast there you didn't have broadband and you couldn't like download programs at that point so there was a big cost of getting things into the stores and what occurred to us was you could potentially sell things over the internet you could just kind of let people know you have this thing over the internet and they could order it over the internet and you could send it to them over the internet radical idea at the time it turns out but we started thinking about that and and our first step we decided should be to cultivate a set of people who would be suppliers of things that we could sell so he knew people i knew people we contacted people we let, got the word out and we started an email list the email list was really supposed to serve the purpose of pulling people together to build out this kind of online business that we had in mind, but it actually turned into a cultural thing. The Fringeware email list brought a bunch of fringy people together. And Fringeware, Fringeware was a name that I came up with when we were talking sometime, when we were talking about, you know, kind of like our fring fringy software kind of stuff. Oh, Fringeware. Um, so um, the list we created, became a place where people were talking about all kinds of cool stuff, not just the stuff that we originally created the list for. So uh, we had kind of a cultural phenomenon brewing there. And what we decided to do at that point was, well, we, so one of the steps that we had to take was to be able to accept credit cards. So I went to the bank and talk to the you know the bankers about um partly about maybe getting some financing which they would be happy to do if i would sign my house over 
we found another source of money <laughs> than that. Um, and the other thing was we wanted to be able to accept credit cards. And they said, well, you, uh, where's your store? Well, we don't have a store. We don't have a storefront. We're going to sell products online. They said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> they didn't figure yeah, out just, yeah, you can't just have people sending a credit card number online in plain text. So they said, you know, that's nobody does that. You're not going to be able to do it. We said, well, you know, we, we could secure the transaction. Well, like with cryptography. No, no, nobody does that. So we were shut down and in order to be able to accept credit cards, we needed a store. So we found a place in Austin called New Bohemia, which I think still exists. Oh, I remember. Yeah. And it was basically a, a lease operation, a sublease operation. A person had a store, a big mm -hmm. store, and she leased parts of the store to various smaller yeah. uh, operators. Mm -hmm. And we became one of those. So we got a piece of the store where we set up our friendswear store and we created a big mural on the side that was kind of amazing. Monty McCarter, who was our, had become our art director, put that together. Um, but the other thing that we had done was that we decided, okay, we can't, we can't sell online. We need to have a catalog. So we, we started to create a catalog and they said, well, why don't we make a zine? Let's have a magazine and we can just put the catalog in back. I used to read a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland that was like that. It was this great, like, it was about movie movies or horror movies and science fiction movies. And in the back of it, they had this section that was the catalog. So oh. we created Fringeware Review. Certainly, yeah. nice. because you had a comic book, they were always going to be selling something in the back of the comic in book. In the back of the comic right, book. Right on, right on. Sea monkeys, man, I bought so many sea monkeys. Sea monkeys, yeah. that's good eating. So sea monkeys were the best. With so their little crowns have... and their little acrobatic stuff they could do. <laughs> so can you see this? No. Like Paco, so let me say Paco was a genius. Okay. And he was, he was really the soul of this operation. Like he did all the sh product acquisition, shipping, everything. He did pretty much everything. And he also learned everything about desktop publishing. He actually learned how to, he built the email software that we used for our listserv. He built that listserv. He learned wow. about the, the, the uh, standards for, for email transmission and he set that up. And then, um, if can you see this order form? He I he made an order form that looks exactly like an IRS. Uh, it does look like that, like tax a form. Yeah. yeah, like a ten forty or easy or whatever. And then we had this, you know, just this catalog in the back. Somebody, Mark Frownfelder, referred to this as a magalog. Magalog. And, <laughs> it was a little like it was a little like Coevolution Quarterly, a little bit like uh, uh, Boing Boing. And, you know, we, through our list, we had met a ton of people who were eager to write for us and we didn't pay a whole lot of money, but we paid something, which was unusual at the time, you know, for somebody to actually get paid for writing stuff for zines anyway. Right. And, and this cover here was done by a guy named Bill Barker, who was a, had this great schwa concept, schwa aliens. Yeah, that's okay. kind of a big deal back then. So we we started this magazine, Fringeware Review, and um, put the catalog in it. Started getting mail orders. There was a distributor in Austin who got us international distribution. It was called oh, Fine Print. Cool. And they they loved to bring zines in and and distribute them widely. Um, though they didn't always get money back to us the way they should but that's another story and um all so all of this stuff was going on we got connected with mondo 2000 those people were on the well so we we became friends with them and we we paco and i both were writing for mondo 2000 as well and you know writing for various other publications so we were doing writing 
uh, we were running our little business. We were getting stuff shipped, um, making a little money. Um, Paco, you know, got took all the money because he was doing all the the real work of making the business happen. And uh, I was more focused on doing the cultural stuff. I had a job, you know, in addition to what we were doing, uh, an actual day job. So I was covered. So um, the other thing that happens in the midst of all this, this is also on the well. So much was happening on the well. On the well, um, a guy named John Perry Barlow met a guy named Mitch Kapoor, who was the guy who who uh, uh, was the his business was Lotus One Two Three, um, and Mitch and John. Well, I should tell you this: the Barlow story. So Barlow had uh, had pulled together a, a kind of panel on the well this was done on the well people just logging in and posting on the well uh having a conversation about uh like new computer technology and personal computers the advent of the computer and the kind of revolution we were having and uh especially about like hackers and what hackers do and a couple of the guys who were in this panel were hackers. Uh, let's see, fiber optic. I can't remember the name of the other one, but but there were a couple of hackers in there. There and in the course of this discussion, I can't remember exactly what happened. Barlow, there was something that happened between Barlow and fiber optic that got fiber optic irritated or activated in some way, and he went off and downloaded a bunch of like personal credit card stuff i think it was for i mean he hacked in and got a bunch of data about barlow and put it into the conference uh into the discussion that they were having uh it got deleted pretty quickly but you know he kind of made the point with barlow that uh about these insecure systems and how i can i can get your information any day of the week and Barlow got to thinking about that, and one of the things he was realizing was that these guys were way ahead of law enforcement. They were way ahead of policy developers. The technology was outrunning policy. It was outrunning enforcement. And that somebody like Fiber Optic, who is really just a kid uh, and is not, you know, malicious, really, uh, who's kind of like hacking into things for sport could get himself into a whole lot of trouble, especially given that, that the people who make the policies and the people who enforce the laws don't really understand the technology at all. And something that, that is relatively benign could be seen as less benign and, and maybe as a terrible crime. Yeah. And that sort of led to the conversations. The real conversation there was that that we don't really have the policies, we don't really have the understanding within law enforcement to deal with this electronic frontier that we're beginning to have. It's like it's like the frontier in that the laws are not established for it yet. We really don't don't know. I mean, it's like it's kind of it can be kind of a free for all. And as those laws develop, they could become there could be very bad laws that would be made by people who don't know anything about the technology. So they started the Electronic Frontier Foundation with the intention of having an input into policy and educating law enforcement about technology and, you know, kind of creating an informed path forward in the development of, of policy and technology. I stumbled into this because, you know, I found this place where this was being discussed on the well. And another thing that happened was that when I was logged into SMOF BBS one night, Steve Jackson showed up. He usually didn't come to SMOF because he had his own bulletin board, right? Well, he showed up one night and he said, 
Secret Service just busted into our place and took all of our computers, and we don't know why. We have oh. no idea why, what's going on here. Whoa. It's like, what the fuck? So, wow. So, and he said that on there, and, you know, Bruce Sterling is there, Mike Godwin is there, and Mike Godwin has just been hired by the Electronic Frontier Foundation to be their first, like, counsel, their first attorney. So Godwin knows, hears this about Steve Jackson, and, and Bruce hears it, and they get all this information together, and they send it off to the EFF. EFF takes the Steve Jackson case as a really good example of what they're talking about. It's like somebody has busted into this guy's business and carried off his computers. And why did they do it? Well, here was the precipitating thing. Um, there was a, a DA named Bill Cook in Chicago, of all places, who's working with the Secret Service, and they're trying, they're like worried about these hackers and people breaking into computer networks. And there is a group of hackers who carry the subtle name Legion of Doom. Oh, yeah. And the guys in the Legion of Doom would go out and do stuff, you know, and, and they would hack into places and kind of like show something to show that they were really able to get into the system. One of those guys hacked into the, the Bell South system and found a document that was about the 9-11 system within Bell South, grabbed the document, took it back. Legion of Doom had a, a newsletter that they sent around called FRAC, P-H-R-A-C-K. And in this newsletter, they included this 9-11 document, and it was being shipped around to all the members of the Legion of Doom, right? One of the members of the Legion of Doom worked at Steve Jackson Games, and they're following these transmissions. So they see that that one of the recipients of the of the newsletter is there. So they're going to Steve Jackson Games because this is a den of hackers, right? Of course, Steve Jackson has no idea any of the stuff's going on until you know the Secret Service show up and the 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 guy that they were after they went to his house and he heard them talking about how they had a battering ram and we're going to knock the door down at steve jackson games oh, and talked wow. him out of it. he said no don't do that i've got a key i'll let you in <laughs> so he lets them in they take all the computers they find one of the gurps books that's being developed it's called gurps cyberpunk and they look through this and they say, wow, there's a manual here for computer crime. It's just a role-playing game, oh manual for computer God. crime. So they carted all this stuff off, and in doing so, they broke the law. The Secret yeah. Service broke the law, uh, the Electronic Computer, uh, Computer Privacy Act. Um, and I don't know this exactly the specifics of, of, of the um, – of the illegal piece, but it was, uh, I think it had to do with the fact that email, private email was stored on those computers and they just carted them off and they weren't really supposed to do that. Plus, they really didn't have any reason to raid Steve Jackson games. Well, do they have a, they, they didn't have a warrant? Yeah, that never seemed to stop them back in those days. That, they, it, it was pretty much the Wild West when it came to law enforcement. They may have had a warrant, I'm not sure, but I, whatever the case, they were in the wrong. Well, cl yeah, clearly you can't. So just, Steve Jackson Fourth Amendment violation. And Steve Jackson sued the Secret Service. Excellent. Kind of unprecedented. <laughs> he awful. sued the Secret Service and won. And his case was supported by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It was their first big case. I recall seeing this big picture of Steve in Scientific American. You know, everybody's making a big deal about, everybody kind of knew about the Steve Jackson case back then. Bruce Sterling actually wrote a book 
that focused quite a bit on the Steve Jackson case and some of the other <clears throat> shaking down of hackers. It was called The Hacker Crackdown, which also became one of the very first books to be distributed for free over the Internet at some point. Yeah, and it's still available for free over the Internet at Project Gutenberg. So after all of this stuff happened, EFF had been planning to build, uh, build itself out as a kind of community-based organization. And the Steve, you know, was in a lot of conversation with the EFF guys. So he said at some point, he said, you know, you should try uh, an alpha chapter, a first chapter to, for your chapter's organization. You should try it in Austin. Austin there's really kind of a hotbed of networking. There's a lot of people there that that would be interested and we'd really be able to build something there. And they said, okay, we'll do that. Uh, and they had hired Cliff Figallo, who was one of the, who was from the well. He was one of the directors of the well, uh, had been managing the wells community. So EFF hired him to help build the EFF community. And, um, um, Steve came back to Austin and invited a, just a kind of blanket invitation over BBSs and, you know, all the usual ways to connect with the people in, in the sort of networked community in Austin. Um, and this was also posted on the well about how he was going to have this big picnic at his house to talk about something really important. And uh, Shiva and I from Smoth BBS, he and I had become friends by then, and we decided to go together. I uh, and we picked up this like six foot long sandwich, I think, from uh, Thundercloud Subs or somewhere. Wow! And took it as our contribution to the picnic. So we went out to the picnic. There's picnic tables out there. It's at Steve Jackson Games, and he's got picnic tables outside and. There's a bunch of people there and, and uh, Steve gets up on the picnic table and he makes a rah-rah speech and says, we're going to have the first chapter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And he asked for volunteers for the board and I volunteered and I became one of the members of the board for EFF Austin. Awesome. And then we started having like meetings. We met every week for a year before we finally had a public meeting, invited a bunch of people and and EFF Austin, 30 years later, still exists, and I'm still on the board and was president for a long time. <clears throat> but that was all kind of a very interesting thing, the EFF Austin thing coming together, and Fringeware and EFF Austin started having some connections through, I guess, through my participation. And I had also connected with another group in town, uh, that I found out about in a Newsweek article. In Newsweek, there was this thing about this robot group in Austin, a bunch of guys who like to build robots. They were like engineer types, you know. Um, and I tracked down the robot group. It turned out the robot group had an annual event called RoboFest. So we started, we connected Fringeware and EFF Austin got connected to RoboFest. And when, I forget which year it was, 94 or 95 RoboFest, um, included uh, a Fringeware presence and EFF Austin presence. And, and what happened for EFF Austin, one of the things that EFF Austin did was we had a, a guy showed up at a meeting of the board and he was a systems administrator named Doug Barnes. Doug, who's now, he later, went to law school and he's an attorney now. He's like a tech attorney in New York, uh, very successful. I think he retired recently. Um, but Doug at the time was a systems administrator and he said, what we really should do is set up a local area network, a LAN with a bunch of computers on it at RoboFest and connect that to the internet so that we can show people what they can do with the internet. And one of the things we'll do is we'll include uh, a MOO, which is like an online 
uh, like a text-based virtual reality that you reach through the network. Uh, it's a place where everything is described in text, but it's like, it's like going into a world. It's a great gaming environment, uh, among other things. Those, and that, that was one of the early you know, Moo uh, adventures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the, the name of the Moo was going to be taken from a book. Doug Barnes had a friend named Neil Stevenson who had written a book called Snow Crash that included a thing called the Metaverse. Oh, I read that. So the Moo was called the Metaverse, Metaverse Moo. And Steve was so excited about this Moo and how well it worked out at, at RoboFest that he said, there's a business in this. I'm going to make this move into a commercial thing. So in doing that, he needed a way for people to reach the move. And he said, well, what we'll do is we'll set ourselves up as an Internet services provider. There were not very many commercial Internet services providers at that time. Um, it was kind of a new thing that was starting to, to crop up as, as a business. And there was one here in Austin called Real Time that almost everybody was using. Uh, and then Steve decided he was going to start uh, a new Internet services provider as a location for the Moo and call it Illuminati Online. Uh, and the, the, it would be io.com, just io.com. And io.com became really popular. People from all over the country were signing up for it. Um, just if it was kind of considered cool. I mean, everybody thought Steve Jackson was pretty cool. Steve Jackson's game was pretty cool. And being on io.com was pretty cool. And it became kind of a big thing. And, you know, uh, Fringeware had been on real time. And then we moved to io.com for a while before we finally, eventually we got fringeware.com and had our own thing. Um, so that, that became a big deal and ran for quite a while. Uh, Iowa.com is gone now. It, it, it eventually went away. Uh, and the mood didn't last a really long time. It, it turned out that the, most of the focus was on the ISP and, and less so on the mood. Um, but that was, that was, uh, a manifestation of the very powerful community that had formed in Austin around the internet. And, you know, we had people would show, we'd have things down at Europa books on the drag, uh, which no longer exists. But at the time it was a place where, where we had a lot of events for EFF Austin and Fringeware had it, uh, a kind of a table set up there where they were selling our products. Um, it was kind of a, it was just a weird time. It was a transitional time and people were finding their way to the internet. Um, and also another thing that happened on the well, another conference that got set up was a private conference for some people. And I got into this thing where some people were starting a new magazine that was going to be called Wired. And they had this private conference where they were discussing it on the well. <laughs> and the Wired uh, issue, the first issue of Wired came out in 1992, I think January. And at, at the very, around the time it came out, or right at the time it came out, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation had invited representatives from a bunch of local groups that had formed that were EFF-like groups uh, to come to Georgia Tech, so to fly to Georgia and, and attend a meeting to talk about building out the Electronic Frontier Foundation community. So you had like people from uh alabama and georgia and new york and just various places around the country where groups had formed there was one i think the one in new york was called nte which stood for not the eff uh, but they were all kind of interested in becoming chapters of the electronic frontier foundation so you had a bunch of people who showed up 
and uh, we had a meeting set. We come into the meeting. The board of directors of EFF Austin have been at a retreat prior to the meeting. They come to the meeting, walk in the door, and announce that they're not going to be a chapters organization after all. They have a new incoming director or co-director with Cliff, uh, Jerry Berman, who had been uh, who had worked with the ACLU and and who had been very focused on Washington lobbying efforts. And he had convinced the EFF that they really needed to go to Washington and that they needed to become uh, an organization that tried to get policy set uh, through the legislatures. And EFF agreed, went for that. So they showed up at this meeting at Georgia Tech and we uh, we all were kind of disappointed to hear that but there was a very interesting conversation that followed they said now let's talk about what we can do and the idea that this is what jerry berman did a lot of the talking and he said you know it really wouldn't be right for us who are we're like a vanguard of of creating policy for the internet as a decentralized system and for us to build a highly centralized organization with a bunch of chapters just wouldn't make sense now backstory on that is i think that jerry was concerned because they were prior to this meeting there had been an email list set up for all these different groups and people were fighting tooth and nail there was a bunch of shit flying around uh and it it was he didn't he he knew that he wouldn't be able to control these other organizations and their messaging and he was concerned about that because the approach that he takes requires you to have more control so that's one of the things i think that fed in i mean i don't know this for sure but i think that probably fed into the decision to uh to not do the community thing anyway but what he said is what we can do is we can build all of your organizations can be part of a network that we build where we will be on the network as peers and eff will not be in any kind of superior position and you won't be a part of eff but we'll network together and do the activism that we need to do as a decentralized network of organizations and I personally thought that was great. I thought, oh, wow, that's a good idea. That's probably the right way to do it. Some other people were disappointed. I think some people were, were really hoping to, among other things, get money from EFF uh, for their organizations, which could have been a good thing too. But that's kind of what happened. So EFF, and EFF has went through a lot after that. There's a lot of changes at EFF over the years before it became what it is now. It's like kind of a, a law firm. It's kind of like a, the ACLU, but focused on, on computer networks pretty strictly. Uh, you know, we worked some with the ACLU back then too. <clears throat> anyway, so I have talked and talked and talked. Uh, and I really wanted to tell this story. I wanted to try to go over all of these things that happened. There's a lot more that I haven't mentioned because I just couldn't possibly remember it all or get to it. But but this, I think, was a very interesting time to be jamming along and, and to step into the Internet, kind of unsuspecting what it was going to become. Okay. It was, it was interesting for anyone that uh, happened to get into your computing and uh... I got into it early on, 1983. I got a little tiny computer that had like you know, 16K of memory and played with that. And it kind of went from there. It got more and more expensive, too. So, you know, the uh, description of uh, some of the things you were talking about, uh, like the well was kind of uh, hijacked. You know, the concept was hijacked by outfits like AOL and CompuServe and Genie, which were the big commercial 
online services that didn't re- they were on the internet, but they didn't let you on the internet. They were just <laughs> yeah as a way of getting a bunch of people in there that was in their uh, enclosed garden, I guess you would call it. And I had, Every- I belonged to all of those. And it, it, yeah, me too. It, there were a lot of good people on there, but as soon as the internet became available to ISPs in the Bay Area, I was gone. <laughs> Everything was an experiment back then. That's that's the thing. Uh, people were trying all kinds of stuff, and uh, you know, um, the mainstreaming had the effect that mainstreaming has, and eventually money comes into it, and you know, yep. you know, money has an effect. Well, you know what yep. we experienced in the Bay Area, and maybe you did here in Austin, the ISPs, the independent ISPs started to disappear because they were being merged with outfits like AOL and CompuServe who said, okay, we need that, you know, f- for their own purposes. And, you know, that's what happened to my original ISP, CCNet, and uh area it suddenly went away and it was owned by AOL. I don't recall really seeing that here so much. And I, the thing is that at some point we moved to broadband and, and, you know, eventually you just have these major internet service providers. Um, and I guess there's, a very small number of, of providers now that provide, you know, the backbone for for the internet. It feels like it's a lot less decentralized than it was. Part of that's because the way people interact with the internet is by going to something like Facebook or, I guess I can't say Twitter. It's X now. They no, it's Zitter. It's Zitter. Shitter. That's pronounced Shitter, I think. Or Shitter. I yeah, yeah, I was going with Shitter. A lot of people are going with Zitter, but whatever it is, it's that's what it, it's not Twitter anymore. Yeah, well that but the, that guy made lots of friends uh yesterday with his little <laughs> where he told the head of Disney to fuck off. And it's like okay. That, and it was like he paused that, like everybody's gonna laugh or something, and everybody just like stared at him like are you insane well, he's I'm, insane i'm gonna run out by <laughs> truck though uh you know <laughs> running it's crazy it's a real different i mean it's di- i i didn't really it didn't even occur to me envision to envision that we would be where we are now i do remember early on there were people on the internet who really did not want to see mainstreaming at all and they didn't want to see it expand at all and it's like this is our thing we don't want to have a bunch of you know normies coming in normies but that's you know that's what we've got folks and i I just kind of went well whatever and (laughs) continued doing what i was doing because yeah there's always people who like they want to be unique and uh yeah, different, but they didn't want anyone else, you know, getting involved and being unique and different as well. Yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, the internet was uh, initially when it first became popular to be on it. You know, it was, a, you know, a badge of courage. I'm on the internet. I'm just, I'm not on AOL. And, <laughs> and eventually, who cares? <laughs> I used to think that it was crazy to assume that anybody would ever like watch television over the internet mm-hmm. because, you know, you looked at see, you see me and it would be this little tiny screen within your screen. And, uh, the whole idea that, you know, we would have this high definition digital transmission going on and, and streaming services where you can stream in 4k. <sighs> it's just crazy. But, you know, I, here in Austin, we had people who were developing that technology, and it was in the mid 2000s. I was part of a thing called the Digital Convergence Net, uh, Initiative, where we had meetings where people showed up and were like in the process of developing that stuff. And we were talking, it was kind of economic, de- de- we were focused on economic development um, for the area. And uh, when people talked about having high definition streaming, I just, I just couldn't even conceive of it. 
And then we had this uh, big party during South by Southwest where the major thing that we were going to include was streaming a band that was playing in San Antonio on a big screen at this party via HD. And the thing almost failed because there was like some bad link or bad connection. But, oh, God. but they pulled it off and it was incredible That's you know, to see. And now it's common. Yeah, what, I got involved with you know streaming radio. Uh, yeah, online radio was uh, a little thing back when I got started, and that was like in the uh, mid to late nineties. And uh, it was impossible to really get anything that was entertaining. You know, you use something like real networks to kind of stream music. Ooh, I remember that. It it was ugly, but then all of a sudden, people started developing apps that. Or programs that could really do it, uh, you know, as long as you had, you know, a, a good bit of bandwidth. I think the least you could have was like a 32k uh, connection. You could even you could do it on dial-up, but you know, it was kind of stupid. But uh, it's gotten a lot better since then. I'm, I'm still doing. It. I've, I've had a uh, two internet radio stations, you know, for for 20 some odd years. <laughs> yeah, I, still- I miss I miss Radio Free Plutopia. Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, we may have to, you know, revive that. It just depends on how things go in the home life here right now. Well, we have we have actually run out of time, and I guess the last thing I'll say is that if if they can figure out how to stream 4K programming 24/7 from all sorts of different sources, maybe they can figure out how to deal with climate change. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. there's the fun in that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a marketable product. <laughs> well, I guess we are done. Thanks so uh, much for listening to me. That was a- Bye, guys. Thank you. It was a good story. It was a story time. Well, we'll do it again. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at Plutopia.io on Facebook. Look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.